0: We call it planet Earth, but we really should call it planet Ocean. That's where most of life is. All our climate is dictated by the oceans. I mean, the oceans are it. We are so insignificant in a planetary context if you actually look at the oceans in that way. Look at how we've treated the oceans historically. We take from the oceans all that we want and we throw back all that we don't. We somehow think the oceans are going to be okay because throughout time there's been this wonderful source to sort of dilute all the pollution that we send out there because the oceans are remarkably vast. But we're now getting to this point where the scales are tipping. If we carry on our current ways by 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the sea than fish. We need an absolute revolution in the way that we look at our relationship in the
1: ocean. That's Tim Silverwood. And this is The Proof Podcast. plant friends. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Most of you know who I am, but for new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show and it is on this show that I get to bring on super inspiring guests to help us lead more conscious and mindful lives. Lives rich in fulfillment and positivity. In this episode, I sit down with environmentalist and fellow Aussie ocean lover, Tim Silverwood. Tim is the co-founder of Take 3, an organization that encourages people to collect rubbish and dispose of it correctly. He has also recently featured in the documentary Blue and is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to where we are going wrong in terms of damaging this planet and what we can do to fix it. Get ready folks, some of the statistics around the damage we have caused is absolutely mind blowing. Tim Silverwood, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Simon.
1: So so cool to finally connect in person. We're, uh, we're in Sydney at my studio in Alexandria. Where are you based? I moved two months ago from the beautiful Bondi Beach that I know
0: you uh, know very well to now living up on the northern beaches of Sydney. So quite a ways up the peninsula there uh, at Bill Plateau. I very guess. happy. What's it like up there? It's pretty special. I was living in Bondi for six years, met my wife there, and Bondi was amazing. I absolutely loved the place, but I grew up in the bush. I grew up on the central coast of New South Wales, so about an hour and a half out of the city. And I grew up on land, so 25 acres of natural bush, and then these beautiful um, beaches within sort of 10 to 15 minutes' drive. So I was really getting to that point of sticking those years out in Bondi of going, like, I just need to be closer to nature. Yeah. And we always thought we'd move and live up in the northern rivers or mid-north coast or something. But sort of the practical elements of being on the northern beaches, you're still
1: a bus ride from town, but it is beautiful. I'm loving it. I'm jealous. I, I do love Bondi, but I, I say to say to everyone, I think, you know, my my three to sort of five-year plan is to eventually get a little bit further away from the hustle and bustle and, you know, enjoy the nature, as you said.
0: Now, That's what I think makes Bondi special though, right, because you've got that ocean that really just brings you back down. But then as soon as you go closer to the city or you get a bit too congested in the little uh, Bondi bubble, but, yeah, the ocean is what's special about Bondi for sure. You're, you're a big surfer, right? Yeah, I've been surfing sort of since I was about 10 years old, so I'm
1: a frother. <laughs> Now, Tim, you're you're a passionate environmentalist. You're the CEO and founder of Take Three, co-founder, yeah, co-founder, co-founder, which we'll we'll jump into shortly. And you you've also you're part of the the new documentary Blue. So I'm I'm super pumped to explore that. But I'd also love to try to understand sort of how you ended up in this space and developed this passion for sustainability and the environment, and you know what truly inspires you. So can we jump back? What was life for you like as a kid growing up? Were you part of a typical family? Probably atypical. I mean, what is normal? I guess is the is the question there.
0: But essentially, single mum. Like my mum met my stepdad when I was probably about six or seven years old. But there was a fair few years there from when she split with my biological father when I was about two or three. So really strong women like my mum and my grandmother were playing a pivotal role in in my life. But it was really, I suppose, there was probably some origins going way back. I was born up in North Queensland at Cairns, which is obviously a a community which is highly connected to the Great Barrier Reef and to terrestrial environments. And so I do recall uh, distant memories of, of the ocean up there and even moving down to the central coast when I was two or three. It was all about the beaches. It was a lot about nature. But I think the pivotal moment for me was growing up in this in this bushland environment from about the age of seven or eight. We moved to this 25-acre property. We, as a family, built uh, built our house. And I just have distinct memories that you know that I didn't have the neighbourhood kids I'd go and play with in an afternoon. I just had the bush and me. And so I'd go out there and I'd explore this um, incredibly complex natural environment. And I think they were really formative years, even before I'd
1: truly fallen in love with the ocean. Yeah, it's interesting because it sounds like you developed a real appreciation for what nature has to offer us, you know, through our experience, whatever this experience is. Do you, this is jumping to the side, but do you think kids these days, where we live in a world now, which is becoming dominated by technology, perhaps less hours outside, do you fear that there's going to be a you know, a further disconnection between the role of, of nature and, and understanding what nature can provide us as humans? Absolutely. That is a major concern and, and fear of mine because
0: you protect what you love and you love what you get to experience. And being out in nature, I know what it's done for me and I'm sure it can be the same for yourself and many people that are listening in. It's, it's so, it, it reminds you that you're just this tiny insignificant thing And that's what being in the ocean or being in the natural environment does for me. So if you're growing up in a concrete jungle and you don't have that opportunity to experience nature, then you're never going to care about protecting it. So it's a really, really big problem. And we know a lot about sort of biophilia and we certainly know a lot about the way that people are being um, alienated from the natural environment. And I don't think it's going to do our our species any favours, this continual isolation of the two.
1: And at what stage during your childhood did this sort of connection with nature turn into, I guess, aspiration to develop a life where you were going to, to give back and try and do right by the planet? I think it was uh, in high school through a subject that is common right across Australia in
0: the curriculum, which is geography, right? And I remember at the time, geography. Certain students, you you loved certain subject areas and many students really didn't have a a liking of geography and there was a few teachers that appeared to be a little bit stale or stagnant. But for me, I always saw something in the subject and I think they saw something in me. And the way I describe geography as that field of understanding is it's understanding people and it's understanding the environment and particularly it's understanding the role of people in the environment. And for me, that just opened my eyes up to this beautiful complexity of this little swirling blue dot hurtling through space that we happen to inhabit. So, at that point in time, I um, I could see uh, the opportunities to continue studying in this space. So I studied it all throughout high school and going to university, I did a Bachelor of Science in Sustainable Resource Management, and a big part of that Sustainable Resource Management degree was, you know, those human, geogra- human geographic subject areas because you can't protect the environment unless you know about the people that are
1: utilising it, living amongst it and, of course, causing damage and causing harm. And, I mean, I can feel how passionate you are about this area. When you were at uni, I often speak to people when they're at uni and it seems like it's a bit of a drag, but was uni for you, were you all in and just loving this this content that you were learning about?
0: Not really. It was sort of one of those things where I was I, I was confused about what to do with my life until the dawn of turning thirty. Right, I'm 38 years old now. It took me a long time to actually find my my flow. So it was a little bit of a sort of like I have to keep studying. It's a sort of like an expectation upon me. I I didn't yet have qualifications or skills that meant I had a clear path after school. So. I did choose to go into study, but it took me over five years to finish my degree. And in hindsight, looking back, and the way I talk to people who are pondering their options after school and before university, I say go travel because I did end up deferring at times throughout my junior degree, and I went and travelled. And suddenly, the information that was in textbooks or in online journal articles that I was reading about—they weren't just dots and dashes and numbers and letters. I was feeling them, and I was seeing sort them. Real. So it was real and sort of quantifiable. Particularly if you care about the planet and you care about people, go and see how our seven billion people live. Go and see how that affects the planet. And that, to me, I mean, I call it my bachelor of life. Right, my bachelor of science is a bit of paper.
1: My bachelor of life is irreplaceable. <laughs> so get out there and travel, 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 travel. So heading heading sort of towards your late twenties and into your thirties is that when you take three. Came, came about or yeah essentially so my years of travel sort of culminated in getting more and
0: more adventurous right as you do you you start out for the first time and you're just tiptoeing around the edges of your comfort levels and then in my sort of mid to late 20s I was getting quite adventurous so I'd just done a sort of nine month bit of what well, I would consider a bit of an odyssey on an absolute shoestring sort of starting in Bali and zigzagging through Southeast Asia and then all the way through India. And it sort of culminated in being up in the Indian-administered uh, Kashmir region. So you're in the Himalayas. I was there to go snowboarding. Wow. I was quite into snowboarding at that time. And I think everything I'd witnessed and experienced in that time was a mi- mixture of just absolute awe and appreciation of the complexities of our species. But I was absolutely aghast at the the way that the coastal regions were being treated the pollution the way that mangroves are being demolished the way that coastal development and
1: industrialization of coastlines it was just really shocking for what me What were you seeing like can, can you sort I of mean, paint a picture of what you're seeing on the ocean on the on the shore
0: Yeah I mean
1: as early on as
0: you grow up in Australia and if that's all you ever know and that's all you ever see, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the world doesn't have any problems, right? Our beaches are beautiful. We monitor and we have planning processes around what you do and don't do in coastal zones. So even just starting in Indonesia and you know, seeing obviously the pollution, which is just you know a globally recognised problem now, you see the gutters and the waterways and all that stuff, but just seeing like poorly managed development, like swimming in sewage. Just seeing
1: like this, you just see that stuff, and you're like, "Oh gosh." Okay. And were you at that stage identifying like was this a, an education issue and an infrastructure issue? I mean, we're probably going to jump into that yeah. later on. But what did you think at the time? I've got a very good knack of just trying to look at, at things big picture, so I can I can step
0: outside. A lot of people. Will go and experience perhaps something like that for the first time and all they want to do is point a finger and pass blame and, and you know, really say things that are quite negative about the circumstances. As someone who's studied geography and done a degree and, you know, that a lot relies upon the acknowledgement of the complexity of issues, right? So I do firmly declare that there's a, a significant problem in these regions in terms of the infrastructure to manage waste, which is also, then contributing to that lack of education, but it essentially comes down to, to sort of money and the will to do something. I mean, managing our waste, and I'm sure we'll go and talk about this a lot later on, is a very, very costly endeavor. Like because we live in our advanced economies and these very civilized worlds, we pop it into this vessel that just appears to then make this stuff disappear into thin air. But there's a huge back end to making our waste go away, and it costs millions and billions of dollars. So. Of course, remote communities in developing regions are never going to have the capacity to do that. So that's why we see them burning it in the front of their houses every day and dumping it in the backyard.
1: Yeah, that's it's a great point because yeah, it's easy to jump to the sort of conclusion and point fingers that they don't care, but do they have the right resources and funds to actually to deal with it? You know? And who who created this this model
0: way of living anyway. It's the the Western civilizations that have kind of, you know, this is obviously a huge thing for you, is looking at how it's processed food and packaged food and just let these giant monolithic companies emerge on our watch that have dictated how these communities actually live day to day. And if they could probably have a bit more of an opportunity to go back in time, they may not have chosen to do it the way they're doing it.
1: Are are those companies aware of... of you know, perhaps what's happening in some of these other countries as a result of of their products ending up there without the infrastructure and education to actually see those products properly disposed of. They're
0: definitely aware, and that's what's
1: um, so empowering about this genuine
0: global movement that's occurring at the moment. It's. It's unavoidable. I've been going to all the international conferences for years and each year you see them stepping up on the stage with a little bit more of a commitment and that is relative to the eyeballs that are on the issue and the campaigns that are being established. But... Look, I'm very, very cynical of corporate responsibility because at the end of the day, their main responsibility is to return profit to their shareholders. And so trying to get them to go and do
1: something for the goodwill of the planet or people is always going to be a stretch. It's not going to be their number one priority. Exactly. So so take three. What What is take three? What's it all about? So uh, in 2009, I just
0: experienced that, uh, that odyssey and I was feeling quite fired up to... Do something about this problem and to do something here in Australia because I got my degree and I was not quite sure what to really do to be a fulfilled role as an environmentalist. The sort of the last sort of tipping point that sent me towards the circumstances that take three emerged from was I was up camping on the Mid North Coast and I was up near Crescent Head, and this day just finished a wonderful day of surfing, everything was blissful, everything was lovely. And suddenly this commotion occurred at this campsite and there was all these vehicles labelled with billabong and it was like all this stuff going on. What is going on? Next thing you know, um, Dave Rustovich rocks up in a kayak (laughs) and he was doing his uh, first transparency voyage where essentially he was following the uh, north-south migration of the humpbacks from Byron Bay to Bondi to bring awareness to his organisation, Surface Visitation's, at that time, the film The Cove had just come out. So in each of the stops that he was making down the coast with a team of, you know, five or six of these Hobie Cat kayaks and um, that showed The Cove and they were bringing awareness towards this problem. But they were also doing beach cleanups. And so when I learned about that and sat around the campfire with Dave and Mikes likes of Hilton Dorr and Chris Del Morrow and Howie Cook and all these incredible legends of, um, of ocean conservation and cetacean protection, and I was like, these guys doing it. They're not. They're not sitting around talking about it. They're doing it. Like Dave is. I've got so much respect for Dave Rastovich, professional surfer and um incredible conservationist. And so um from that point on, I think I actually then said to them right then and there. Well, when you go and show the cove in Avoca, I was living on the Central Coast. I'll be there. I'll, I'll, I'll help you run the event at, the, at Avoca. So I got up on stage at Avoca and I said, "We've got no excuses." I was talking out to all my friends and peers and colleagues and local surfers. I'm like, we've got no excuses. Let's go and do action locally to tackle this problem of plastic. And in the audience was someone who lived next door to Mandy, one of the other co-founders of Take 3. She said, you've got to meet Mandy and Roberta. They've got this really cool idea. So I think within a few days, I was sitting around the coffee table um, at Roberta's place with Mandy and Roberta, and they presented this little printed few pages Take three, a clean beach initiative, and it had this outline of how they thought they could actually make a dent in this problem by encouraging people to take three bits of rubbish when they leave a beach. And so I was like, "That's cool. That's, That's not just so going cool. out there and picking up rubbish uh, ad hoc, doing cleanups. This is actually something people can do every day, everywhere." So my eyes and lit it's up. Achievable. It's achievable makes you feel good. It's very easy to communicate. And lo and behold, here we are in 2018 and, yeah, next year we'll turn 10. So wow. it's been a long, hard road establishing it as a, as a bona fide nonprofit
1: organisation and charity, but it's been amazing. I like that. It was initially presented on one piece of paper and every great idea starts as a small little idea. So it seems like everything just aligned for you perfectly at that time. So take three, is it is it something that's being done you know, what sort of scale? Like, wh- wh- How many people have you reached? Is it something that people are, are, are joining in globally or what are, what are you seeing? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I'm glad we're sitting here at the
0: end of 2018 talking about this because this was a big year for us to go and do some research to understand more about our impact, both environmentally and socially. So, We've seen over the last 10 years, particularly since sort of 2011, 2012, when we started utilising social media, great time to be getting involved with those social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram. So we started obviously using those platforms and particularly championing a, a simple hashtag, hashtag take three for the C, got a nice ring to it. So we just found out this year that just on Instagram alone, that hashtag has been applied in 129 countries. Wow. So pretty unreal when you think about, I couldn't even name half that many countries. So, and that's just from the posts that people have done on, you know, on their public accounts. We were also able to do a pilot project in the last sort of, um, couple of years where we worked with Macquarie University to see how many pieces of plastic people were actually picking up when they share those images. Because, of course, a big part of that message is do this little you know, simple activity to help our oceans. Why not take a photograph and share it with the tag? Because that's going to actually inspire others. groundswell. Yeah, exactly. And it makes people feel like they're, they're part of this global movement. And so since analysing the results of that pilot, just from uh, our Facebook audience, which at the time was only about 40,000 followers, we're now at over 110,000, we found that we're pulling out about 10 million pieces of rubbish from the environment every year. That's incredible. So you think about all you're doing is picking up a few items of trash and maybe taking a photograph, maybe not. But by looking at that analytics and seeing that, wow, that's $10 million. And that's just from, and we've since then,
1: like our audience has grown significantly. So it's pretty crazy. Guys, take home message there is take three for the sea. Yeah. That's it, yeah? Hashtag take three for the C. That's it. You look for that. so honest. simple. Mm-hmm. That's, you must be super proud of, of what you've done with that and also, you, I mean, your whole team. Yeah, and that's only one part
0: of of what we do, right? So, yes, I see the success that we've had using those digital channels and, you know, online, but the actual business of Tate Three, I mean, we're a charity. What we do day-to-day is face-to-face programs. So since 2009, we've been going into schools, working with high schools, universities, even early learning centres. We run all these activities in communities, going showing films like Blue, running cleanups. All this stuff, every single day of the week, we're basically out there doing stuff with our team of people. And so that in itself is having a profound impact because there's nothing beats face-to-face, right? But I think for me, as someone who is just so passionate about tackling this huge problem of, of ocean conservation and plastic pollution, the online stuff gets me super excited because I can just
1: see how relatively easily it is to scale and scale amplify, amplify that message, amplify so when you, when you are visiting these communities, what do you, what's the average sort of understanding of plastic and where it goes and recycling? We, when we first started, the main catalyst, the reason that, you know, myself,
0: Mandy and Roberta sat down and said let's do this was because there was very little understanding of the problem at that time. And I probably wouldn't say that we've seen a really significant uptake in understanding at a, at a significant level globally, until probably the last sort of two years. So for a long time, it felt like it was a hard sell. Just getting people to understand that plastic is made from oil; it's made from petroleum, and it doesn't go away. I mean, that in its first uh, in its in itself is is a first big obstacle to overcome. Plastic like, is
1: made from petroleum, and it doesn't go away. Simple as that.
0: I mean, here we are. We talk so much about shifting away from our obsession and reliance on fossil fuels, yet we're sucking it up and making a plastic straw that you use for a couple of minutes and then
1: throw it away and it lasts longer on this planet than you do. And we think it's gone because out of sight, out of mind. What, what happens to it? Like if, 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 if we think we're doing the right thing, we're, we're buying single-use plastic and we put it into the recycling bin, you know, like we've been taught as a kid, you've got one bin for food, one bin for recycling. What happens to that straw?
0: Yeah, look, a straw um, shouldn't go in the recycling bin because it's made of what we call like a soft plastic. So essentially the first thing you have to do if you do want to partake in recycling is make sure you know what is and what isn't recyclable. And here in Australia and I guess many places around the world, the port of call is your council or your county or your, your municipal government, right? They'll have instructions on what you can and can't recycle and it changes from town to town, and community to community. So... Good luck navigating that minefield in the first place. But essentially, until recently, um, anything that wasn't recyclable, you just put in the landfill bin. Um, Here in Australia, we have very well-managed landfills as a general rule. So it goes into a giant hole in the ground or an old abandoned mine, and we fill it up with all that stuff that we don't want. And then when that hole's full, we cap it, and we cover it with soil, and we regenerate it, and we move on to the next hole. But in many parts of the world, like Japan or Hawaii or many countries in Europe, they use incineration or what's conveniently called waste to energy. So you turn that waste into energy by burning it. So huge contributor to to climate pollution and a huge problem when you burn certain types of plastic, you release very harmful chemicals like dioxins and they persist in the environment for a really long
1: time. They gather in certain species like large marine mammals and uh, it ain't good. So. Is that is that cheaper or is it due to them not having the land, enough land to do the landfill? Yeah,
0: certainly places like Japan and Hawaii have
1: that sort of as, a, as an issue. Places
0: like Scandinavia, Sweden and stuff, they've got like a, a long history of, of sort of using waste energy. They now actually take on many other countries' waste in order to sustain it, and a lot of that will probably go into heating for, for you know, the cold winters and whatnot. So, Look, waste to energy is a very interesting one because many people working in the space will say it does have a role to play in the big complex landscape of managing waste. But the problem is if you do it wrong, it's really, really bad. And even if you do it right, it's not really sending us towards a sustainable future because you're motivated to just keep on creating all this waste to what we call feed the beast. Because the more waste you have, the more energy you create, the more energy we use. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle there instead of changing habits. Exactly. We, we talk a lot about the vision for the future being this circular economy. Like, How can we close the loop on our consumption of resources? And that's a really exciting place because you're actually starting to say, well, we can have this much more sustainable relationship with our planet just by being acutely conscious of the wastage that currently exists in our consumption, I mean, we are just shockers. Like in Australia, we're second to North America
1: in terms of how much waste we create, and it's just horrific. And as in per capita, per capita, yeah, wow, yeah, shocking. That's crazy. Over-consuming, over So the circular economy—it's—you uh, just use that phrase, and I've heard it. Can you describe, like, exactly what a circular economy is, and ideally, how you'd like to see that work in Australia and globally? Cool. Yeah. So. The best way to get your, um, your head
0: around the circular economy, it's a very, very complex ecosystem that you're uh, aspiring towards. But the, the best premise is just to acknowledge that our current economy, and we're talking about the economy of stuff, right? So it's stuff that we're consuming. It's incredibly linear. So you think about it. You know, think, pick any item around us right now, Simon, whether it's my water bottle or my reusable water bottle or this table or, or anything, right? It's, it's made from resources, and those resources have essentially come from the earth. So we've gone out there and we've mined the ore to create my stainless steel bottle. It's been created using non-renewable energy. Someone's burnt coal or used gas to create the energy to manufacture that. It's then been transported around the world using similar non-renewable energy. And if that's a single-use item, if that was something that was designed to be thrown away, then at the end of its life, it goes in a hole in the ground or it gets burnt for energy. So that's a very much got a start point as a resource, huge amount of energy used along its chain, and then it's going into the ground, very linear. And very inefficient, I guess. Very inefficient. But if you were to think about that being like in a natural cycle where there's no such thing as waste, right? We look out our window here and we see these plants growing. There's Leaves that are going to grow, they're eventually going to die, they're going to fall back to the soil. Those nutrients are going to return back to the soil and it's going to sustain the the next branch or leaves of that that plant. Similarly, if a bird comes along and hits that window and unfortunately dies, it's going to then go and its nutrients are going to be returned back to nature in perpetual cycles. So there's no reason that looking at my reusable stainless steel water bottle there, that couldn't have been made from 100% recycled stainless steel. There's no reason why it couldn't have been made and transported using renewable energy where energy has always ever come from the sun. And there's no reason why at the end of its life, if I didn't want it anymore or a seal busted, I give it back to the provider of it and they turn that back into a new, new water bottle. So this idea of circularity
1: is something that has many, many complex facets. But if you can just imagine it in that way. So it's like not breaking that chain from the from chain. the product innovation all the way through to the use and after use. Yeah. So so much of what we talk about now under conventional
0: recycling is, okay, you use it, you might still using it just once. It's still made of a, a non-renewable feedstock like plastic. Yes, you pop it in the recycling bin, but then all this energy goes into transporting it, remaking it, And quite often, it rarely goes away to become that item again. So you might recycle a plastic PET bottle, but it's going to come back into the value chain as as an eco-certified T-shirt made of PET, or it's going to come back as carpet for your floor. Those items aren't necessarily then able to be easily recycled again. So you're only getting
1: one extra life, and you're essentially downcycling it. So question, because I know that people listening will be thinking, how... How am I to know what the hell I should buy and not? Like if they go in and they pick up a stainless steel water bottle like that, and is it going to be affordable? Like do, do we have the, from a manufacturing point of view, and I guess, you know, people that are making these products, have have we got enough of those companies that were set up with efficient practices to make these products affordable?
0: Yeah, look, um, I think the first thing to look at in that respect is reusable Defeats disposable. So obviously, anyone listening who has got a bit of a ways to go in terms of adopting reusable products, um, just by embracing a reusable item, you're you're already taking a big step in the light in the right direction. Anytime there's sort of conversations about plastic bag bands or shifting from plastic straws to paper straws, what naturally emerges the conversation around those comparisons? So we call that field of study life cycle analysis. So I might put up my stainless steel bottle here and someone might say, yeah, but do you know how much energy and resources went into making that stainless steel bottle? And I'll say, yeah. And I'll say, well, you've got to use that 30 or 50 times to offset what would be the energy footprint of a plastic bottle. And that's a big conversation that happens when people talk about plastic bag bands versus paper bags. Naturally, paper bags do have a higher embodied energy than a plastic bag because plastic is very cheap, very easy to manufacture and you can transport it very, very easily due to the same nature of those things. But what I often say is that left out of the equation in a lot of that LCA,
1: that life cycle analysis, is the impact if that plastic item gets into the environment. So the paper bag requires more energy even if you take into consideration disposing of it
0: and recycling? Yeah, I mean, most often the life cycle assessment analysis looks at the sort of the value chain up until it gets to the consumer. And that's probably where I'm sort of getting at. It doesn't necessarily look at what happens next. Like, yeah, wow, what that, I mean, there's that incredible viral video of the turtle with the straw up its nostril, right? And it's like that factor of that straw that got into the environment and caused such harm and would have naturally killed that organism had there not been scientists around who happened to discover it
1: and rescue it. What is the value of, 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 a, of, a, of a natural being in that way? I guess you're kind of comparing almost to an extent two evils. It would be better, right, to have a bag that's not plastic or paper and that you can reuse many times. You got it. Yeah, you're on board. This is right. So <laughs> reusable defeats disposable in any circumstance. No excuse for single use is a popular hashtag out there. Okay. So we we've we've touched on sort of industrialization and you know there's there's lots of people talking about the damage that's having on the, on the land. But from, a, from an ocean perspective, if you were to sort of quantify it or paint a picture from a habitat destruction or affecting species, what have you seen or what is the actual problem? The basic premise for me is that the
0: ocean, which of course covers 70% of the Earth's surface and Really, it is our planet, right? We we call it planet Earth, but we really should call it planet Ocean because that's where most of life is. That's where all our climate is dictated by the oceans. I mean, the oceans are it. We are so insignificant in a planetary context if you actually look at the oceans in that way. But then the flip side of that is look at how we've treated the oceans historically. At the moment, and this is a, a lovely way I like to describe it, is that We take from the oceans all that we want and we throw back all that we don't. And we somehow think the oceans are going to be okay because throughout time, there's been this wonderful source to sort of dissipate and dilute all the pollution that we send out there because the oceans are remarkably vast. But we're now getting to this point where the scales are tipping. And this is where that horrific statistic came out um, at the start of last year, which was that if we carry on our current ways by 2050 there's going to be more plastic in the sea than fish.
1: So the 2050, yeah. More plastic in the in the ocean than fish. Yeah. So the biomass that is wild. That is wild, right?
0: So the entire biomass of the oceans, which I mean, if anyone has ever spent time on the ocean or sailed across it or just went on a plane and looked down upon it, it is so big. And here we have a statistic that by 2050 there's going to be more weight of plastic than fish.
1: And there was something else I think on your website around half of marine life, sorry, this is on the blue website, half of marine life has in the last 40 years has been lost. Yeah. And for certain species like big, large,
0: pelagic fish, it's, it's much, much worse than that. Honestly, the, we need an absolute revolution in the way that we look at our relationship with the ocean. Is
1: all of that damage from humans? Essentially, we've been the ones that have triggered it. Yeah, the oceans were doing just fine before we. So, really... there's no other land species that are contributing? Well, I can imagine right now. No, it's all us. Yeah, it's not right. It's all crazy. And, and it's that, that statistic about the fish is the last 40 years. Is, it, is that essentially when we started the whole industrialized food system? That's when this kicked off? Like, this damage has literally been done in 40 years.
0: It's gone into hyperdrive, right? And that's a big part of the conversation around plastics as well. I mean, we weren't. You talk to your grandparents about plastic, like I did with my my late grandmother, who um, who passed away this year. She sat down on film with me one day for a film called One Beach back in two thousand eleven, and I said to her on camera, "Do you remember the first time you ever encountered plastic?" And she just just her eyes just drifted off, and she says, oh, "I think I was about thirteen, and you know, someone came home with this." plate that was made of bakelite and it was incredible but it was a plate that you could drop and it wouldn't it wouldn't break. So she would have been this is talking you know probably 1925, 1927 or something like that. And so phenomenal that we've just slowly understood this material but then come the 1960s and 70s
1: we just and, went and, and it just order. became normal. We didn't um, understand the repercussions. Yeah now we're using 300 million new tons of it plus every year. It's crazy. Is the damage reversible
0: yeah yeah nature is incredibly resilient there's an instagram account i love looking at like it's about abandoned properties you know what it's like when you see an old abandoned place and nature is just coming back but nature won't have any trouble gaining a foothold a stronghold it's just probably what's going to be the consequence to our own species and what for me what motivates me a lot is what i call the collateral damage right it's about you know Nature and the planet will flick us off like an irritable flea if we continue being as blind and stupid as we currently are, but we are having such an immense effect on these incredibly innocent species and ones that we will never get back again, and that's because of us, and
1: that that motivates me big time. And do you ever think about what's the tipping point to start seeing change? If we're going to see change and and humans are going to proactively start to address some of these issues what what's the tipping point how many people do we need to come together
0: yeah good question I mean it is people Uh, that's definitely the case if you look at just you know politics right politics is informed by by the people and unless you've got a majority in the population that are going to be the ones out there demanding change and we're seeing a very rich conversation around sort of climate change here in Australia and globally and um I love I'm not extremely active in that direct like carbon reduction conversation climate change my focus and my mandate is on the oceans and plastic but really interesting to see at the moment how you can rally the troops and really establish very clear-cut campaigns to create that that weight of momentum required to shift politics so I'm fingers crossed at the moment it's quite an enthusiastic week last week with all the young people out there protesting, taking a strike day off school to go and protest their poly- political
1: um officers. It's pretty cool yeah, I guess you know kids kids like when you're a kid, similar to food, but we talk about the environment like if you ask most kids like they love they love nature and they love the ocean right but you you sort of just grow up with plastic being normal part of life and I know, you know. Speaking for myself, through my childhood years, I just didn't really have the education, I guess, as we we're growing up to understand like what is the impact of my consumption on the planet.
0: Yeah, exactly right, and that's that's the weight of what we're up against, right? So that's why our focus at Tape Three has been on educating and inspiring youth, because when you actually show a young person the problem their natural instinct and inclination is to go, well, that's not good. Let's make it better. And they're not kind of confused by all those extra elements that we place upon things. We get very, very, like, you know, paralysis by analysis of the older that we get. And so giving young people the opportunity to sort of make their own informed decisions about, okay, now that I know the impact that a plastic straw might have on, a, on an ocean creature, I'm, I'm going to not use them myself. You know what? I'm going to look at my school canteen and go, why are we giving away plastic straws? And who knows, maybe I'm going to end up establishing my own little campaign or initiative to get my entire community on board. So I'm just so motivated by young people. They're just everything for me.
1: Blue, the the film that you've been involved in, how did it come about? Who were you approached by the producer and director? And has it been a, a sort of a long time coming? How long did the filming take? Yeah, um, so it came out, we're in 2018, it came out mid-2016.
0: One of the most amazing things about Blue is the ability it still has to just keep on growing and amassing this momentum globally. So lots and lots of film screens. People can actually go to the website and organise their own community screening. It's one of those things that um, the film is aimed to do. But, yeah, I was fortunate enough, um, one of my ex-staffers at Take 3, Sarah Beard, was involved with the film as the producer originally and now the impact producer. And so she really worked very closely with the director, Karina Holden, to bring the film to light. And, um, yeah, so I feature as an ocean guardian. They basically said, well, how do we tell these very complex stories around these uh, ocean issues? And they've chosen to work with these guardians. So there's about six uh, guardians that are featured in the film and that helps to bring a very personal story to these, uh, these complex problems. So I talk about plastic alongside a really amazing
1: researcher, Dr. Jennifer Lavers, who studies seabirds. and um, That's that's crazy, that part where they, they show the plastic that they're ingesting. Yeah.
0: Seabirds are uh, probably, for me, they're the real sentinels of, of the sea and to see how much of the populations
1: of seabirds that are being studied have plastic in them is really quite frightening. And some of those... The, the, the chunks of plastic that were coming out because they were. What, what was the process involved? It was like putting some water into their stomach, right? So that they would regurgitate right. anything that was in there. Yeah, there some sizable bits of plastic, sharp plastic. Yeah. So this scene in the
0: film takes place on Lord Howe Island, which is about 450 kilometers east of the um, the mainland coast of sort of you know, Sydney, Coffs Harbour. Yeah. But what happens is seabirds, they're called seabirds for a reason, right? They live on the ocean, all their food, all their water, everything about their lives is the ocean until they come to the land to mate and to raise their young. And it's at that time when they're trying to get those young chicks healthy and ready to take flight to begin their own journey of living on the ocean. It's at that time when they're very susceptible to plastic. So it's actually the mums and the dads, it's the parents of the seabirds that go out looking for food to feed their hungry babies and they feed their young and they essentially kill or very greatly risk their their young. And so what happens is every Is, is that
1: because the plastic looks a lot like the 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 standard food that they would be bring back by what what sort of food are they going out to? Get? Yeah, so a
0: lot of times it's um squid. So they're looking out there in the ocean for squid. I mean, you've seen seabirds feeding their either plummeting down deep to try and get their hands on fish or they quite often just bob around the ocean surface, resting and recuperating. At that time, they might find slicks of natural organic materials mixed in amongst the plastic. And for whatever reason, obviously, there's no education going on for them to tell them what they can and can't eat. They're consuming huge amounts of plastic. So what Jennifer Lavers does is every sort of March, April, um, researchers go to Lord Howe Island, and they, they flush out the young chicks before they're getting ready to, 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 to fly off the island. And in that process, you see this regurgitation of plastic, which is probably one of the most um, challenging and, and emotional scenes in the film. But then you see the relationship that Jennifer has with the birds. She's been watching birds die year on year on year throughout her entire academic career. But she's still motivated to save one bird and to get up there and inspire
1: people to stop
0: using plastic. So, yeah, anyways. I'm
1: going to show the, the link to the documentary in the show notes, but you definitely need to see that scene because it's so impactful. And, and the, um, so that's obviously the Australian context, but the one movie that
0: is freely available to watch online as well is from Chris Jordan, a film called Albatross. And the albatross population on some of the mid North Hawaiian islands up towards Midway Atoll and, and Laysan. That's where I actually got my first big kick up the kick up the bum was this images and you probably if you saw them right now you'd see them but Chris Jordan got these incredible medium format photographs of dead albatross carcasses and they just had these bellies full of plastic and that was in 2009 just when we started Take Three and so I straight away got onto Chris and I was like we've got to use your image to bring attention to this and so powerful put
1: the, the Take Three logo on it, and that became a real poster image for us in those early days so we're talking about standard sort of plastic that you can see. But we hear this term microplastics, right? There's a lot of microplastic in the ocean. Can you just help explain, A, what is microplastics and how it's getting into the ocean? Yeah. So when you think of plastic, you do just naturally think of a, a, a
0: visible plastic item. So that could be you know, a bottle or a bag or a straw, or it could be the Polyester t shirt you're wearing, or the, the sneakers that you've got on, whatever it might be, like plastic is, is everywhere. But microplastic either refers to manufactured plastic, which is small to begin with, so less than five millimeters. So you wouldn't, you know, MEPA wouldn't be aware of this, but when plastic is transformed from oil and natural gas into a physical substance, it's chopped up into these little beads. And these little beads are called nurdles. So they're a perfect example of a microplastic. They look like a um, just a bit smaller than a Tic Tac, kind of like a little uh, little um, plastic bead. So you'll find those all across the oceans and all across the environment because they spill out from production. But also I think about like um, body scrubs, face washers that used to have these things called microbeads in them. Thankfully, most of the big companies have phased them out now. So they would essentially sell it to you as being like, oh, use our product. It's got these exfoliating microbeads and the marketing's spot on and you go, yeah, I want to get rid of that acne. I'll use that stuff. Well, that's plastic. So you use those um, products. There's even some toothpaste that has that little flecks of plastic to make it look all shiny and cool. Um, that just goes down the drain and because it's so small, it goes uh, into the oceans or into the environment after that sewage treatment process. You also find microplastics in a lot of industrial, like, abrasives. So if you're doing, like, some
1: blasting paint off something, like sandblasting, they'll quite often use plastic as that. And is it am I right that with, you know, washing your clothes, microbeads end up going out into the ocean? You're absolutely right. So those ones I was referring to before are essentially those
0: bits of plastic have been built and designed to be small to begin with. But then the other side of the microplastics and nanoplastics conversation is how existing plastic items degrade, right? So we know that plastic doesn't biodegrade in the sense that a leaf falling to the ground out there decomposes and becomes those base compounds. Plastic degrades, so it fragments. Fibres in your shirt when you put it to the washing machine become little brittle, tiny little filaments. Cars, we drive around on tyres, those tyres get smaller and smaller over time, right? They wear down. Where does that plastic go? That is now microplastic in the environment. The carpet that we walk on, I went to do a cinema screening recently where people walked into the cinema and there was this beautiful beam of light coming down. All I could just see was this cloud of microplastic fibers from people walking on the carpet. So we live and breathe in
1: micro and nanoplastic every single day. So is this, is that or oh, that's always going to be a part of our life? Like it, it, I'm just trying to sort of break down this issue without sort of overwhelming people? Because, I mean, when you get into the nitty-gritty of that sort of stuff, it's like, whoa, I'm going to have an impact one way or another. Is it is it sort of accepting the fact that some of those are part of our life that we've created now to live in a modern society but we need to address some of the, I guess, low-hanging fruit of things that we can make a immediate impact which are easy to implement? Like what, what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's definitely about sort of curbing your use of unnecessary single-use plastic, and there's a lot we can do as individuals or as communities or as businesses to try and sort of tackle that stuff. It starts with your coffee cup and your straws and all that. But I guess getting into the, that sort of bigger macro level, we do need to look towards science and research to actually start to understand a bit more about the role this material is playing in our lives because in studying science at university, a big part of uh, looking at sustainability was this precautionary principle like if we don't really know or have a very clear idea about what the long-term impacts of some of these decisions might be then should we really be doing them i think back to rachel carson and silent spring where she sort of went out there and saw all these birds and insects and mammals dying as a result of chemical pesticides and it's like well shouldn't those studies have taken place to on ddt before it went out to market so i do think there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of um using rigorous research and science to make sure we're not making fundamental uh, errors that are going to really bite our species on the bum in
1: time and I, I would say at the moment we're not doing that with plastic yeah wow it's a huge issue this is this is not a small issue this is a huge issue the back to the to, to the microplastics I've, I've read and come across a few things where people have been speaking about the fact that they can they can end up in drinking water and in, and in the soil is that is there truth in that and is ingesting these microplastics dangerous?
0: Yeah, look, that's probably the, the, the million-dollar question, right? We can certainly understand the, the, the rates at which we are ingesting it. So it's been found in bottled water. It's been found in table salt. In it's been beer. found in bottled water. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that may even be, it may be from the, the process of actually bottling the water in the first place but even just imagine right now you're lifting that screwing off that lid of a bottle of water or soft drink that plastic even though it seems to come off quite smoothly it's brittle there's little bits of, of of plastic coming off just by screwing on that lid and screwing off that lid so we're talking about micro stuff here right nano stuff and similarly like when I was giving the analogy of walking across carpet you might not see it but it's there it's fragmenting off every single day so Recently, there was a study that found, you know, microplastic in, in stool samples in poo. So, of course, it's
1: coming into our body. The hope is it's going out again, right? But going back to what you said earlier, it's it's made from petroleum. Yeah. So is there a chance that it's like leaching in the body or is it coming out exactly when they did the samples? Is it coming out exactly as it went in? Can they sort of quantify that?
0: The big challenge here is not sort of just saying... Plastic is plastic. I learned recently that there's 40,000 different types of plastic, and that would mean tens of thousands of different types of chemical constructions to make that huge world of 40,000 different types of plastic. And we know there's been one particular poster child in the last couple of decades called BPA, bisphenol A. And that is one of the additives used in like hard plastic. So the Nalgene bottles are one that was a really big issue. There was the ones um, around like baby bottles. So bisphenol A is used to harden plastic, but it actually performs as a synthetic estrogen. So you give a, uh, a baby uh, a bottle that's kind sort of rich in BPA, that's going to mean they're going to take on a lot of those sort of female, similar female, you know, hormonal characteristics. So, BPA has essentially been one that has been clearly identified as causing significant harm. So now you'll see all these products out in the market that are BPA-free. What they fail to sort of say is that the alternatives they've used to still create that hard, rigid plastic may be even worse than BPA. So there's actually no controls and mechanisms to actually prove this
1: stuff is actually inert before it goes to market. So this is like So, so crazy. And at that point... That aligns really well. I was down in Melbourne recently and I was talking at a little wellness event. There was another another talker there who is a nutritionist but very experienced in sort of dealing with hormonal issues. And she was talking about men who sort of have that bit of that tire around their waist, which often is linked to estrogen, right? And no matter what they do, what exercise they do, It doesn't go away. And one of the key things that she goes through with them is lifestyle changes. And one of the ones she mentioned was drinking water out of plastic bottles. Mm. Yeah. And this is and this the thing that's gonna be really hard about this is there's so many ethical dilemmas around
0: studying human impacts of this stuff because there's, you, you try as a university to get permission to subject people to some of these synthetic chemicals, you just can't do it. So it's getting really, really hard to actually do the hard science and obviously the timelines, we don't really know. And it's very easy in an instance of a chemical to say, oh, look, we've tested it, this chemical is fine, but we don't just have exposure to one chemical. We have exposure to hundreds and thousands of these chemicals. And so what does that combined cocktail actually do to us? So this is where it's getting, um, you know, it, there's going to be a lot to come
1: out in this in recent, in future years. Now you've got me thinking, I, I don't really like the idea of not washing my clothes and, and being that stinky guy. And there's probably people listening, thinking the same thing. But is there a way for me to wash my clothes, be a little bit more conscious and have less impact on the environment? Yeah, so we spoke a little bit about the role of science and
0: research to sort of understand what the uh, consequences of design might be. And I suppose what I'd really like to see from a lot of energy and attention around using recycled material for for clothing, if we can show and test these materials to see that they actually shed fibres, say, less than a traditional garment, then that's taking us in the right direction. So underpinned by research is a really, really good thing to be mindful of moving forward. But also I suppose like, you know, natural fibres, it's it's pretty, pretty awesome what we can actually achieve from natural fibres. I wear a lot of linen now. Maybe that's part of living up on the northern beaches, but like I find there's some linen T-shirts and shirts that I wear and I can wear them day on day on day because of the way that they're wicking and, and, and being quite good in terms of stopping me from being that stinky guy in the corner.
1: That's some great tips there. So that's plastics, and we've spoken about the the impact on seabirds, We're talking about microplastics. What about fish? We've, we've touched on the fact that, you know, there's diminishing numbers of fish in the ocean. Are there certain types of fish that people should, should if, if people do eat fish, should stick to, it, and ones that they should avoid? Are these fish consuming plastics? Are they fish? Are they full of toxins as we hear in articles what what's your sort of advice around consumption of fish wild versus farmed things like that it's a huge area to talk about i think as a
0: as a first premise just to try and be informed about what it is that you are consuming so obviously people listening in will will have certain types of seafood that they love the film blue does look closely at the global tuna trade obviously Tuna is is coveted as either a, a delicacy or chicken in a can. Like there's so many different spectrums. It's something that you can pick up for
1: under a dollar or it's something you could pay a few hundred dollars for if you were in a, yeah. uh, a luxe and marketplace. The, the size of the tuna has changed dramatically, right? Absolutely, yeah. So
0: they're really one of the ones where, you know, the statistics, if you were to search for them, like certain species of tuna are down to like percentages of their original population, right? They take a long time to mature, and they are just being taken from the ocean in such horrific quantities. There's one um, sort of statement in blue where the Philippines Greenpeace campaigner, Mark Diaz, says eating some species of tuna is akin to eating a a snow leopard. And we look at a snow leopard and we... In terms of extinction. In
1: terms of the numbers. Yeah, wow. From their
0: original population.
1: Is that where he's going through like the markets or like as soon as they come off the boat? Exactly. And he's sort of going
0: through and saying... Now, obviously the, the big one that we know is got hugely depleted stocks is like you know your bluefin tuna, but you know, there's other there's so many species out there of, of tuna, and I'm no expert on this, but it's essentially like it's really important that you know you you do think about the backstory of what it took to get that little bit of chicken in a can that you just went and bought for a dollar. Like what are the consequences this is having on people and the planet in order to get that to you? So where I send people is there's so many websites and apps now about sustainable seafood. So It's not necessarily if you don't want to stop eating seafood, then it's about trying to make informed choices because there is better ways of consuming protein from our oceans, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, I know. Like in in Australia, I think the recommendation from the Australian Dietary Guidelines is is two pieces of fish, I think, a, a week, which is mainly based around the fact that they have you know rich in omega 3s right which is an essential fatty acid essential part of a diet for the average person out there going and buying fish you know at the grocery store or the local markets do you have a position in terms of is that harmful to fish stocks and to the health of the individuals potentially or you know what, what's your sort of advice for them you know, i just think we need
0: to reconsider the relationship that we we have with the ocean and that severely extends to the way we view ocean protein. I just think that it's so clear to me that this renegade approach that we're taking and it's so highly unregulated, right? I mean a huge percentage of the fish that's consumed in Australia is coming from international markets where there is no regulation. So illegal and unreported fisheries are are gonna they will take everything from the oceans unless we as consumers start to send indications
1: that we want better ways of doing things. So. so if you're in the grocery store, though, is there a specific way to identify fish to consume versus fish not to consume from a sustainability point of view?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, i download one of the, the apps. So there's plenty of sustainable seafood apps out there and they use like a very simple traffic light. So obviously red is like we'd strongly consider you don't do this. Orange, make your own informed decisions. And green. Yeah, you can pretty much be
1: sure that in this context, it's going to be okay to consume. Getting getting to the nitty gritty, the practical stuff. We've spoken, I guess, about the the overall issue that we're facing and the damage and destruction from a practical level. What can someone start doing today? What are the sort of a handful of things that someone can do that are easy to do? They're not expensive, and they can make a big impact. Whether you like it or not, you've just taken the first
0: step because you've got to this point in the podcast, and you just learn about how dire some of the situations are in respect to, to the plastics and the role it plays in our life and our environment but yeah getting informed is obviously the, the first step so carry on that journey um, following us is going to be a great way of getting regular exposure to some of the, the impacts that, that plastic and, and waste is having on our natural world choose to reuse like we've all got those bottles and coffee cups and tote bags they all exist in our lives it's whether we've got the impetus and the motivation to actually dust them off and use them. So I've been really enthused by, in Australia, you know, huge campaigns like the War on Waste, even living
1: in Bondi, right? It's, it's a thing to have your reusable coffee cup. It's a thing to carry around your water. And they're on the counter of pretty much every cafe, like in terms of people, them selling them. Yeah. So that they're very accessible. Yeah. And if in doubt, have your tea or coffee sitting down, chill out, slow
0: down. But, yeah, try and avoid as much single-use plastic as is feasible. You know, get informed about recycling. You'll probably find that you're putting things in a recycling bin that shouldn't even be there. There is other avenues now, like with soft plastic recycling, so you can take back all those soft, squishy plastics to your major supermarkets. Look, it's, um, it's going to be a, just a process, right? But I do think it starts with, and, you know, get out there and do a take three for the sea. Like, you're going to look down today after watching this podcast, you're probably going to see a bit of plastic on the ground somewhere. And at that point in time, you've got a decision as to whether you want to pick it up or whether you want to leave it until next time. But you can do
1: that. Pick it up. It feels good. And, and you did mention about single-use plastics. I believe Europe or part of Europe has actually banned it, right? There's a really
0: interesting bit of policy that's been approved for targeting 10 major single-use plastic items, and this is, this is where it needs to go, right? There's only so much we can do as passionate advocates to change people's behaviour. You need policy change. And you need corporate responsibility. So what the EU is doing uh, is phenomenal. The UK cracking along at the moment, thanks to like, Blue Planet 2 and the work of David Attenborough and big media
1: agencies in the UK are leading strong on plastics. And where's, where's Australia sort of on that journey? Do you see us banning single-use plastics here? And, and what needs to happen for that to sort of that to speed up? We're lagging, unfortunately.
0: When we sort of first saw the first few years of our existence, it really felt like Australia was poised to take a leadership position on this. We've got such an incredible relationship with the coastline in Australia. Most of the population lives within 100 100 kilometres of the coast, but we've really lagged in recent years. There's definitely some policy announcements out there that sound good on paper, but the level of inaction on this issue has been quite sad. We have got a couple of shining examples of success like in New South Wales now we get the 10 cents refund when we recycle bottles and cans and that's now in Queensland so by the end of next year that's going to be in every state and territory in Australia except for um, Victoria so there is some good examples Coles and Woolworths banning single-use plastic bags and switching to the reusable
1: ones like they're all taking us in the right direction but far too slowly in my opinion. And may just a, a, a parting note here coming to the end of this episode you sound quite optimistic about this space right how do you see things changing is it in the next five to ten years 20 years do you see it as a a, a quick change that's going to happen or is this something that's going to take a while in terms of stopping the destruction that we're doing and actually you know cleaning up the the existing damage and stopping the destruction that's happening at the rate that it is today
0: yeah my my optimism may wane when we get to that level of, of sort of deep philosophical perspective because I'm enthused and motivated because change is so much better than inaction on this stuff like, and that comes back to that sort of premise about the collateral damage that we're causing at this point in time. But I do think moving forward we are going to have a great degree of challenges as we as a species try to navigate what a sustainable relationship is with our planet and with our biosphere actually looks like. So I don't think it's going to be an easy road. I think that certainly listening to a lot of the climate scientists who are saying it's 10, 12 years that we've really got to try and reverse some of this, this the sort of planetary impact of our of carbon pollution. So look, we've got to get, we've got to pull our finger out. We really have to wriggle on this. And that's why even though taking a few items of trash might seem so insignificant, it's about creating a movement. It's about creating a movement of people who in the face of this adverse circumstance say, I don't care about how big it is, I'm going to do something because something is a heck of a lot better than nothing.
1: Exactly. And, and understanding that everything you do as a person, it does help and it does count. And, and you being that beacon of light and being conscious, it affects all the people around you and it, you know, it, it's that groundswell thing.
0: Exactly, mate. And that's exactly what you've um, been able to do. This, This podcast is brilliant. I've listened to quite a few episodes and I'm just sort of so enthused by how anyone can be a communicator. We can all be this change maker. We often look at people and think, wow, they're remarkable, they're incredible. You have that ability just by getting informed
1: and being good at communicating. 100%. We're getting towards the end of this year. What are your goals for 2019 and what's on the horizon for you?
0: Yeah, look, Take3 is, um, you know, quite an established charity now, but that comes with its challenges. As CEO, there's a lot on my plate to not just um, secure our immediate future, but to take this thing to be as big and as powerful as it possibly can. So we've spent the end of this year doing a lot of reflection on um, on our progress to date and, and charting a new course for the future, which is culminated in even some things as significant as a new purpose and new vision so stay tuned for a new launch of the take three website in 2019 our relationships with incredible institutions like the world surf league will be hanging out with all the pro surfers again in 2019 getting their millions and millions of followers around the world to to take um, a leading charge into this protection of the
1: ocean. So big things ahead for Take 3. Sounds like fun, man. I just actually just had Alana Blanchard on the show. Yeah, I listen to it. It's great. Yeah, so she's a, she's a very cool, very cool woman. I want to go to Kauai now. Oh, That's it's beautiful. Yeah, I can't wait to get back. Part of it was shut, but I'd love to get up there and have a look sort of at you know, the, the National Park up in the north there. It's, it's meant to be amazing. Yeah. Mate, thank you so much for coming on the show and shedding light on I guess what can only be described as a catastrophic issue that we are facing, and it's it's just very clear that as individuals we need to pull together, and that's the only way we're going to get out of this this crazy destruction that we've we've caused. How can people get in touch with you if they want to know more, learn more, and also follow your journey into 2019?
0: Yeah. Thanks. We've got a unique surname. So if you look for Tim Silverwood, you'll find me and hit me up with a DM or something on uh, on any of the social channels and I'll, I'll get back to you. And obviously take three for the sea, similarly easy to find. That's our handle. So um, we look forward to having you join us in our, in
1: our journey into the future. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you. And that's the take home message, guys. Take three for the sea. Well, that's it for this episode. What a cracker it was. I love how laid back and easygoing Tim is, yet at the same time, able to stress how serious, how real this issue really is. I hope you enjoyed it, folks. And more so, I really hope it inspires you to take action. If we can all make small changes in our life, together, we can have a huge impact. All right, guys, over and out. I will see you in the next episode. And remember, if you could, please leave a review on iTunes. That will make the show more discoverable. And share your feedback on social media. I would love to hear from you.